listening to a Westpac Wire podcast. Westpacwire.com.au. Good afternoon. Welcome to today's economic briefing with Bill Evans, Chief Economist for the Westpac Group. I'm Gil Lima, Chief Executive of the Business Division. First, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which our webcast is taking place today, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, and pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging, as well as those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people among us on the webcast today. I'm webcasting today uh, from this large, very empty room here in Sydney, and uh, Bill Evans is doing the same out of Melbourne. In other circumstances, we would be gathered in person. Uh, I think the only positive thing is that we're using this technology to reach many more of you. I'll keep hosting the sessions by webcast each month and providing updates, and we're going to be meeting again in person, hopefully, very soon. It's an absolute privilege to welcome you, customers who have chosen to bank with Westpac, St. George, Bank of Melbourne, and Bank SA. I know that your time is incredibly valuable, particularly in the middle of this crisis. And so I'm delighted to be here and to have Bill Evans, one of the leading Australian economists, to share insights with you. I believe this is a crucial time and it's absolutely fundamental that our bankers are in touch with you, providing up-to-date economic insights to help you navigate market industries, particularly in these challenging times. Uh, in my recent conversations with clients, I have seen many companies that have had very sound and strong franchises pre-COVID going through incredibly difficult times. For many of you, it's going to be a long road before full recovery. I would like to highlight and to reinforce that we're here to help. Despite the challenges, I have to, see that in, I have to say that in many of my discussions, I became incredibly optimistic. I have seen many of you being able to pivot and to reinvent your businesses in the middle of this crisis. So I'd like to ask you to please keep a communication channel open with our bankers and with our company so that we can help you the best way possible over the coming months. This is the first online webcast that we have in this format, so I'd like to apologize in advance if we have any technical difficulties. We're going to be doing a replay link that will be available for all of you after the event. Please ask questions. Uh, there is a text box underneath the video screen and if you're using your mobile, there is a tab saying ask a question. Thank, thanks for those of you who have submitted questions in advance. Bill is going to be addressing many of those as he goes through the key themes of his presentation. We will hope that we find, you find this, uh, this session valuable as you think about your business and the recovery. With that, I'm going to hand over to Bill. Well, thanks very much, Gil, for that introduction, and thank you all for coming along today to listen to our uh, talk about the economy and the risks and the markets uh, that uh, lay ahead of us. So let me start by setting the scene with regard to the reason why the government embarked upon this massive fiscal stimulus that we've seen over the last couple of months. And I want to take you back to March 15, uh, to the financial review uh, slide that yep, right. to the financial review slide that highlighted the key risk that the government and all of us were most worried about. So this slide looks at the projections for the number of intensive care beds that were likely to be required by the end of April. So the yellow line was the most optimistic number. Uh, the the, the middle line was the sort of the central view and the red line was the uh, most pessimistic view. Optimistic number being needing 3,000 beds, most pessimistic needing 6,000 beds. Now, the black line is how many beds existed and the blue line is how many uh, they thought could realistically be added to the system. 
So you can see the frightening imbalance that the government was worried about from the information their advisers were giving them back in March. And that, of course, would have been the great tragedy, the great tragedy that we saw in, in Italy in particular, um, where people uh, uh, presented at the hospital and there just wasn't enough, weren't enough beds to provide them with care. And as you know, uh, I think the latest number is that uh, as of today, only one person is on a ventilator in Australia and only a handful are actually in intensive care. So Australia has achieved magnificently in dealing with the crisis. Um, the, uh, the numbers involved now, if we look at the number of new cases, uh, you can see how new cases really peaked around that late March period. Uh, you can see what happened from, from mid-March when the government was responding to the advice about the need for those beds how we did see the explosion in new cases, but how we've been able to deal so well with the new cases. And now, of course, things are trundling along the bottom. Obviously, there are concerns about uh, outbreaks, concerns about a new, a second wave. Uh, and, of course, there are huge concerns about the impact that the virus itself is going to have on the world economy. But certainly, there is reason for optimism in Australia and we saw that in the Westpac Consumer Sentiment Index. So the last two observations are the ones to watch. So in April, at the depths of this despair, the Westpac Consumer Sentiment Index fell by 17.7% down to a historical low. Um, and there was great concern about the economy. But as we moved through, particularly in early May... Uh, and the survey was taken around mid-May, uh, we saw a huge rebound in confidence. So whereas we saw a record fall in April, we saw a, 16, a record 16.4% fall in May. And that was responding to that extraordinary performance that the, that the country achieved in terms of dealing with the, dealing with the virus and the evidence that things were starting to open up a little earlier than expected. And you could see across the states where the opening up had a big impact upon confidence. So, for instance, in Victoria, where things were slower to open up, in that observation, confidence was only up by 8%, whereas in New South Wales, where things were opening up more quickly, confidence rebounded by 23%. I think that was the first real sign uh, that... that we were able to identify that things were turning and it was the first really well-regarded piece of data suggesting that our confidence was returning and that the depths of despair that we'd seen in second half of March and through April were starting to ease. And one particular aspect of that survey that I found of most interest that some of you may have heard me talk about before was the five-year outlook for the economy. So... When we had our last recession back in the early 1990s, um, the five-year out outlook for the economy was pretty modest. The, the component of that five-year outlook this time is 50% is higher than it was at that time. So what that's saying is that in a real recession, people become quite distraught about how they're going to get out of the recession. And they can't really see the profile that will see things recovering. I remember in the early 90s, we used to talk about the jobless recovery. Uh, and when we spoke to people then, it was, well, you know, people tell us that we're out of the recession, but we're, we really can't see much of a difference. And to be honest, I can remember the big turning point came in December 1993 when it was announced that Sydney had won the Olympic Games. And that one word, Sydney really turned confidence and got the economy moving. But that was a long, drawn-out recession, and we're not expecting to see anything like that this time. And some of that evidence that we've seen over the course of May has certainly given me some confidence in that regard. Uh, if we look at uh, the data around uh, some of the high-frequency data around credit card expenditure... Uh, clearly, things have been improving significantly in May, even in some of the, se the services sectors 
such as education, leisure, recreation, healthcare, uh, we've definitely saw the low point in spending in April and May is looking significantly better. Let me make a couple of comments, therefore, about GDP. So as you can see, we're expecting GDP to fall by between 7 and 8% in the June quarter. Today we saw a minus 0.3 for the March quarter, meaning that GDP growth had slowed from 2.2% for the year to the December quarter to 1.4% for the year to the March quarter. But the big pain is coming uh, in the June quarter, uh, particularly driven by this collapse in, in second half in, in through all of April and in the early part of May uh, from consumer spending. And that's what will lead to this big fall in GDP. Uh, we're expecting, as I said, around 7% fall in GDP. That'll mean two consecutive quarters of negative growth, and that'll mean that we'll be having our first technical recession since the first half of 1991. However, we are expecting, as you can see, quite a rebound in the economy in the second half of this year, so on the September quarter and the December quarter. And we think we'll finish the year, certainly with the economy operating at a lower level than it was at the beginning of the year, probably by around about 4 or 5%. Um, so the economy contracting by nearly 8% in the first half of the year, but recovering in the second half by 4 or 5%, with that, some of that recovery coming in the September quarter and the rest and more of it coming in the December quarter. Next year, I expect growth will revert back to a more normal trend of around 2.5%, but huge uncertainties around, particularly around how we deal with the unwinding of the JobKeeper package, uh, how we deal with the restrictions on foreign travel and the implication that has for uh, uh, immigration in particular. I'll say a little bit more of that further on. Um, Clearly, the big pain in the economy is around the unemployment rate. And the message from history there is not encouraging. So if we look at the recession we had in the early 80s, it took eight, year, eight years, seven months to get from that low point we saw before the early 80s recession back to that level of unemployment again. And then in that recession we saw in the early 90s, it took 15 years to get back to that low point um, of unemployment, uh, which was around about that, uh, that 5%. Unemployment then fell down to 4% in the lead up to the GFC, jumped to 6%, and we still have not seen that 4% being registered even 12 years after the GFC. So we're expecting that the unemployment rate will lift to around 9% by the end of June, uh, and drift back a little to 8% by the end of the year and drift back a little further to 7% by the end of 2021. But that compares with that 5% low that we went, came into the recession. And let me say to you that without the JobKeeper package, the unemployment rate would have been around 17 or 18% rather than the 9% that we're seeing. So the problem for the economy will be how long it takes to get back to that level of unemployment of around 5% that we saw before the COVID crisis hit. And bear in mind the Reserve Bank sees full employment around 1.5%, uh, around 4.5%. So getting back to that 4.5% is going to be a very, very, very long journey indeed. And unfortunately, the impact that that has on wages in particular and consumer spending is going to be the challenge we're facing. Let me just say a couple of snippets to give you a feel for how the labour market uh, evolved um, over that April, uh, early May period. So we saw the uh, May jobs report, and that had a, a, a number of interesting aspects to it. So that first column shows you that 600,000 people lost their job in that, in that period between mid-April and mid-May. It shows you, however, that only 100,000 registered as unemployed. So 600,000 lost their jobs, but only 100,000 registered as being unemployed, increase of 100,000. We'll talk about that a little later. 
However, nearly 700,000 registered as being underemployed. These are people that had a job but would have liked to have worked longer. And the reason why only 100,000 registered as unemployed, uh, whereas 600,000 lost their jobs, was that 500,000 left the workforce altogether. So when they were interviewed, uh, they were asked, uh, Did you, are you looking for a job? And the answer was no, I haven't got a job and I'm not looking for one. And that was mainly because the job, keep, the job seeker package didn't require them to look for, look for work. Uh, and people were discouraged from looking for work, realising that the difficulty in getting out meant that the, uh, the, the, the possibility of getting a job was low. So they didn't say they were actually out of work. So that's why the 6% number that we've got for unemployment rate at the moment is a massive understatement of the status of the, of the labour market. The other two columns are very interesting. So 750, sorry, nearly a million people said that they were in work, but they had less hours. And even more interesting, 750,000 said they had an employer, but they didn't work any hours at all. And that's the effect of that JobKeeper package. And that was to try and keep people attached to the workforce, uh, even though there was no need for them to work at all. And that hopefully keeping them attached will mean that when demand does recover, that they will be well positioned to uh, join, their, join their employer again and to continue to work. The JobKeeper package, of course, was uh, quite, um, quite controversial at the time. And those of you that have heard me speak before will realise that I was really surprised that they expected 6 million workers to be covered by the package. We have 13 million workers in the economy uh, and when we look at some of the sectors that employ a lot of people, such as finance, half a million, uh, construction, 1.2 million, healthcare, 1.8 million, uh, education, 1.1 million, administrative services, government, nearly a million. It doesn't take you long to get about 6 million parts of the economy that were not really going to be able to qualify for JobKeeper. So to say that 6 million people were going to be covered by JobKeeper always looked to me to be a massive exaggeration. And when the government corrected its errors uh, and uh, corrected its estimates and said 3.5 million, uh, I think that's a much more realistic estimate. But, of course, what that means is that we reach a point where the budget position uh, is not going to be as bad as we expected. These are the revised budget numbers. So what we're saying is that the deficit during the GFC, peaked at 4.2% of GDP. In the early 90s, it peaked at 4.1% of GDP. This time, it'll peak at 8.5% of GDP. But look at how long it took those deficits to turn around, whereas this time, we're seeing that the, the uh, correction to the big spending happening very quickly in September. A couple of other re interesting aspects of what was happening with, uh, with the job story you can see where the big job losses were occurring. So at the bottom, we saw the big losses in accommodation, in uh, rental, in hiring, in real estate, in professional services, where job losses were varied between 20 and 30%. Uh, and um, uh, uh, whereas up at the top, you see very few job losses in finance, in healthcare, in education, uh, in, in public uh, administration, and in utilities. So not surprisingly, the big, big job, job loss areas were the ones uh, providing those services, whereas other parts of the economy, uh, the job losses were fairly well contained. Also interesting to look at the areas of the economy uh, in the age groups as to where the losses mainly happened. So the biggest losses were in under 20s, and that, of course, was around the casuals, uh, and also the over 70s, also related to the casual effect. The other big issue that uh, we need to be concerned about is wages growth. So as you're aware, the, the, the big head, headwind for the economy going into the GFC, was around, going into the COVID crisis, was around weak wages growth, which led to weak income growth, which constrained consumption. And that's why we really couldn't get the economy up and running for so many years because of weak consumption growth that was being held back by weak wages growth. So quite frankly, the last thing we needed 
was a sharp jump in the unemployment rate that was going to put further weight on wages growth. And unfortunately, I expect the wages growth story is going to continue to slow from this point. So we'd be looking at wages growth by the middle of next year, slowing down to around 1.5%, from around that 22 2.3% that we saw before we came into the crisis, and really not lifting back to even 2% uh, before the end of 2022. And that, of course, is going to provide that onward, ongoing headwind for the consumer. So that's going to represent one of the challenges that we'll have, sort of the resumption of this weak consumer spending uh, that we saw even before uh, the COVID crisis came along. The other big headwind is going to be around population growth. Because bear in mind, about 60% of our population growth comes from from, um, net migration. And the uh, Prime Minister, reflecting the travel bans that are, that are now being applied, has estimated that in 1920 uh, uh, external immigration is going to slow by 85%. That's going to slow down population growth from the normal one and three quarter percent that we've been used to to something more like to something more like um, uh, around uh, three quarters to one percent. Now, I think that's an that's an overly pessimistic story, but it's certainly one that we do need to think about going forward as a major headwind for the economy. So, what are some of the factors that might be affecting the states around this population story? If you ask me about those states that are going to be most adversely affected by the travel bans, which are so clearly the key factor behind the weakness uh, for the economy. Then we think about um, Victoria, where about 72% of population growth comes from net migration. New South Wales, about 80%. So those two states are the ones that will be affected by the net migration. We also look at the implication behind the foreign students, where New South Wales and Victoria have dominated the growth from the foreign students. About 40% of their spending comes from uh, university fees, but the other 60% covers things like rent and and, uh, household goods, etc. So New South Wales and Victoria will suffer the cold wind, not only from the migration story overall, but also from the impact on uh, foreign students. And then, of course, the impact from uh, overall uh, overall foreign tourism, uh, which is dominated by New South Wales and Victoria. So when we look at the states that we think will be most adversely impacted over the next couple of years. Unfortunately, we have to look at the two major states where the population story, the foreign student story, uh, the, the, uh, the tourism story will all be major, major headwinds for those states. The other major headwind, of course, will be around the building cycle. Now, we know the government is concerned about uh, this and they're talking about um, uh, grants for new building, and they're not just talking about restricting it to first-home buyers. We know the Master Builders Association wants a $40,000 grant. Others are asking for even more for new building. Of course, we are expecting to see a major collapse in dwelling approvals, almost a 50% collapse as we move through 2020. The numbers are holding up remarkably well at the moment, but I think the collapse in, in, in dwelling approvals and the impact that'll have on construction is a very major factor, particularly for 2021 and the second half of 2020. So while we'd be seeing a strong rebound in a number of components of consumer spending, the drag, the longer drag from business investment uh, that we're now seeing with very weak business confidence and the longer drag we'll see from the construction cycle will be important factors. That's one of the reasons why when we see this October budget, I certainly want to see the government addressing those issues. I want to see them providing a stimulus, a stimulus packages. I want to see money going into new, new housing construction. I want to see them bringing forward the tax cuts that have already been legislated for 2022. As I said, weak household income growth and weak wages growth are the fundamental problem behind weakness in the economy. And we need to provide a way from the government to boost household incomes, particularly when the economy comes off 
the JobKeeper package at the end of September. So that budget, that budget um, fiscal pop, that budget policy uh, in the budget in October is going to be critical. It needs to be expansionary. Obviously, we are going to have big issues around our foreign debt and our fiscal deficit, but those issues need to be put to one side to deal with providing stimulus for the economy. Um, this picture just shows you the pipeline of new construction and how it was already falling into the negative range, but how that's going to become a lot more negative based upon what we're expecting around the building approval story going forward. Um, house prices are a big conundrum. Um, we're expecting house prices to fall by around 10% over the course of the rest of this year. That's national. We think New South Wales, as I indicated to you, New South Wales and Victoria generally will be the states most adversely affected by the aftermath of COVID. Uh, I would expect house prices in Victoria, in Melbourne, to fall by around 12% by the end of this year, Sydney by around 10%, whereas in those states that are more reliant upon mining, uh, less reliant upon uh, the immigration story, population growth story, uh, Western Australia, South Australia, house price effects to be less uh, in that 6 to 7 to 8% uh, and Queensland similarly. Why are we expecting house prices to fall? Uh, my view is that even though interest rates are very low, affordability is still constrained by the high house prices. And for me, markets are driven not by the static level of affordability, by people moving in and out of the markets. And for me, the incentive to move into the markets at the moment is dubious. Uh, people will be worried about their jobs. They may feel they can afford a, a, the, the, a, um, a, a mortgage at the moment, but how secure will they feel about retaining their jobs and being able to service a large mortgage? Uh, we think investors will be nervous about house price expectations. I told you before about the really strong recovery we saw in confidence in that May consumer sentiment survey. Uh, but in April, we saw a 50% fall in the outlook for house prices, and the outlook for house prices only recovered by 4 or 5% in May. Uh, so I think that the feeling about house prices, which affects investors, we have an investor sentiment index, which we think is turn, has turned down quite sharply. And the feeling about job insecurity, uh, which affects first home buyers, I think will be the key factors that will constrain that house price story. But let me say to you that of all the variables that, that we look at closely, the one that I'm most nervous about is the outlook for house prices. Uh, and certainly, if you wanted to give me a case to say that the 10% national fall that you're talking about over the course of this year is too much, uh, then I would say to you, yes. I would say that the risks on that 10% are to the downside. In other words, that the fall is less than 10% uh, relative to the upside on house prices. Let me finally talk about the reason why the government should be providing more stimulus. So if we look at Australia's government debt, I would be expecting that to blow out to around 34% of GDP based upon the big stimulus packages. But compare that to the US, who I think is blowing out to 115%. So while Australia is having a blowout in its debt relative to other countries, we're still doing really well, and that's why we need to maintain that fiscal stimulus package. In terms of markets, by far the most surprising development we've seen in the last couple of months has been the explosive growth in the Aussie dollar, up to 69 cents at the moment. I think that's gone too far. I think it's really being driven by optimism about the economies opening up and pessimism about the US dollar. So we still believe, we our longer-term view that we've been communicating to you for some time is that the Aussie dollar will continue to appreciate over the course of 2021 and 2022. We've got a 72-cent target by the end of 2021, a 74-cent 70, a target by the end of 2022. Uh, but I think the 69 we're looking at today looks like it's gone a little too far too quickly. So we still have around about 68 cents by the end of this year. We may have to edge that up a little 
but I do feel that at the moment uh, the the optimism around the global recovery, uh, and that's all channeling into the Aussie dollar, which has been the strongest currency, is uh, is probably overly done at this stage. In terms of our overall forecasts, and the Reserve Bank is set to remain on hold for an extended period. They're offering to buy three-year government bonds at 0.25% for three years. That means they're expecting to keep that cash rate at 0.25%. Uh, and I expect they'll keep that bond rate in place this year and next year. By 2022, I think they'll have to edge that up a little because I'd be very surprised if they thought that even in 2022, they'll be keeping the cash rate for, for another three years in, on hold. That'll keep bond rates fairly low, but with the government having to borrow more, I think that'll push up uh, interest rates in the bond market. And as I indicated to you, the Aussie dollar we've got lifting to six, we've got holding at these at 68 cents by the end of the year, so having to come back a touch from the current 69. But then onward and upward for the Aussie dollar uh, in 21 and 22, reaching around 74 cents by the end of December 2022. Some of you may have seen a lot of publicity that I received in the last couple of days on the benefits of negative interest rates. Uh, my view is that Australia is in a very good position to benefit from negative interest rates. However, I've got a central bank governor who's saying they're extraordinarily unlikely. I think he's not looking at the possibility that if we had negative rates, we wouldn't have negative uh, retail deposit rates, we wouldn't have negative mortgage rates, but we'd have negative wholesale rates, which would put extraordinary pressure on the Aussie dollar, uh, would also support um, uh, businesses to, to actually get a real relief on their borrowing costs and, dis and discourage people from overly putting money into cash. But that's a long story. I've written a lot on that. If you're interested, then uh, I, I refer you to a paper that I released yesterday that's received uh, quite considerable coverage in the media. But I'm ready to take some questions, if, um, if that's okay. Excellent. Thanks, Bill. Uh, first question we have. We have seen a lot of tension between Australia and China on the trade front. Where do you see the risks for Australia? That's a really interesting question because undoubtedly trade tensions are a huge issue for Australia. Just to give you some numbers, China is Australia's largest trading partner at $150 billion a year. Uh, so we export about $150 billion and import only around $70 billion. So we have our largest trade surplus with China. So our interests in maintaining good trading relationships with China are very important indeed. I split that $150 billion into two buckets, around $50 billion that I do believe is at risk. $13 billion of that is agriculture. And you heard the story about barley. You've heard stories about beef. Um, we have a substantial exposure in wool. Uh, we export about a billion in wine, about a billion in, um, in grain, about a billion in, um, in, in cotton. So we have a wide disparity of, of uh, agricultural exports to China. They take about 25% of all our agricultural exports. We have three risks. The first one is just the, gen the, 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 the genuine trading friction concerns. The second one is China's approach to their industry policies, and that's what brought along the barley tariffs. Uh, and the third one, of course, is the fact that a number of these prices have fallen substantially under the weight of the COVID crisis, and that brings other players into the market for China imports. The other, hundred bit, uh, the other component is coal. We've got about 18 billion in coal exports, half of that met coal, half of that um, uh, uh, thermal coal. Big risks around the coal story. Coal prices down 30%. China's already been known to have blocked both of those coal exports on various occasions. Uh, many exporters competing with us on that coal story. China only imports about 10% of its coal in both thermal and met. So risks around coal. And finally, of course, as we've already talked, about 18 billion, 12 billion in students, 6 billion in tourism, about 18 billion from Chinese tourism and students. And of course, given the travel bans, given China's expectations that they should become more self-sufficient in both education and tourism, 
that's also a risk. So there's 50 billion of the 150 billion that I would say has some risk associated with it. The other 100 billion dominated by iron ore, 65 billion, and around 18 billion in uh, LNG, and the rest in base metals and gold. All of those prices are on the move, upward move. They're reflecting China's decision to re-stimulate their economy in the face of the COVID crisis, Uh, China to build on their industrialisation, their urbanisation. They need our products in those sectors. So I'm comfortable with that $100 but I certainly feel that there are genuine risks around different parts of that $50 of China exports. Thanks, Bill. Next question. Which sectors do you think will be the winners and losers post-COVID-19? Well, of course, the biggest risk around COVID is foreign travel and so tourism and, of course, leisure and recreation because so much of that also relies upon foreign students and upon tourists. So all of those sectors, I believe, have challenges. And that's why I've argued strongly in government circles that when the JobKeeper package uh, is due to expire at the end of September, as Gil mentioned, there are a lot of very, very good businesses that were unfairly impacted by this crisis. Uh, And if they're still facing particularly the constraints around some of these ongoing uh, restrictions, then they need to be looked after for as long as required to see whether they come out the other side. Businesses that were doing well before the crisis uh, but are still struggling because of some of these ongoing restrictions need to be given government support for as long as we can, as required to see whether they will survive under the new restructured economy. So I think that's quite important. Some of the winners, of course, will be mining. Uh, I'd like to think manufacturing could, be, uh, could benefit in terms of the lessons that we've learnt about uh, disruptions to the supply chain. Unfortunately, China and other parts of Asia do have substantial cost advantages in that manufacturing supply chain. But I would like to think there will be some parts of manufacturing that will do well in that regard. What's your view on the medium long-term prospects for the hospitality sector? Uh, look, the medium-term prospects will, de- will be determined by the foreign travel in particular. Uh, now, the best message that we seem to be getting from the industry is that they feel that within the next few months the so-called New Zealand bubble will open up uh, and within six months we'll be starting to see freer travel from Northern Asia and within 12 months we'll see Europe and the US. So that's still a long, long time uh, for those industries that are reliant upon foreign, uh, foreign travel. In terms of social distancing, we have to think in terms of how will people feel about um, uh, remaining socially distanced? Will people feel more emboldened to start uh, res- uh, breaking those sorts of uh, restrictions? How tough will the government be on social distancing? I think when I talk to other economists and when I talk to people who are gazing into 2021, there is genuinely a fear that there'll be a second wave. Of course, we all look back to the Spanish flu of the late 1900s, where the second and third waves were arguably more damaging than the first wave. So I think that the social distancing restrictions will be with us for some time. That's going to make it more difficult for the recreation leisure industry for, for an extended period of time. That's why I've argued that, uh, that government support for good businesses need to be available for some time so that we can see whether the inevitable restructuring that you get in an economy when you get, when you go through the sort of recession we're going through, how, which businesses will survive in the longer term from that restructured perspective. Thanks, Bill. Do you foresee a credit crunch or a crash when repayment holidays end? Look, a credit crunch is very much around funding. What we feared during the GFC was was a funding restriction on banks. It is not a credit crunch this time. Banks have excessive liquidity. And the best measure of that is that I talked about the Reserve Bank cash rate at 0.25. Well, that's the rate that the Reserve Bank will enter the banks at. The banks aren't borrowing from the Reserve Bank. They don't need it. They've got, they're flush with funds. 
the rate that really determines the cash rate is the rate that the Reserve Bank pays the banks on the money they lodge with the Reserve Bank. That's point one. So the cash rate at the moment is actually a tick above point one because that's the rate banks are prepared to lend to in the market because the alternative for them is to lodge their liquidity back with the Reserve Bank. So this is an extraordinary period. I don't expect this liquidity story to change. I think the Reserve Bank is committed to quantitative easing. And so uh, the idea of a credit crunch, I think, is highly unlikely. Banks will have to make decisions on which businesses are going to make it through this crisis. I've argued strongly for government support, but, of course, one of the other tests for banks will be once we reach a point where the the business has to start uh, making its interest payments again. This period we're going through at the moment, businesses are not able to do that, but our bankers are very close to the businesses. They understand those ones that they think will be capable of of actually maintaining those payments. So I'm really comfortable that we won't see a credit crunch We may see the fact that banks make decisions that certain businesses are not going to make it through the other side. Uh, But given that I'm arguing strongly, and I think the general feeling will be the case, that the government will provide ongoing support to businesses through JobKeeper for some time, I'm certainly not expecting to see a liquidity-style credit crunch when we get to the other side of September. Thanks, Bill. Uh, you touched on a bit of this. Uh, can you share any views on your outlook for the construction sector? Well, as I said, the big worry is around building approvals uh, in the residential sector. Uh, we're certainly the, the industry specialist housing industry associations expecting a 50% fall in approvals, uh, and we're not too far different to that. So that's indicating very weak construction story in 2021, 2022. Um, The issues around commercial property are manifold. Uh, One big question, what will happen to vacancy rates, working from home? I'm not as worried about that as others because we also realise that businesses are going to need more space for workers that do come in. And whether what the net effect will be from more people working from home but those that do work in, in, in the office needing more space, will businesses necessarily... Uh, require a lot less space. Big question mark on that. Uh, we have to worry, however, on valuations. We have to worry on, um, on confidence. Confidence is a huge factor in property markets. So we are nervous about the outlook for both commercial property and that construction cycle. And as the outlook deteriorates, so activity levels deteriorate. So I have to say that the lags on the lags from the reset from the recession onto that construction cycle are the longest and they're the ones that we feel most nervous about over the next couple of years. Okay, great. Next question. What impact do you think the termination of JobKeeper will have on investment markets? Uh, on, the, uh, on the equity markets? Well, at the moment, nothing's stopping the equity markets. What you have to remember, if you look at the timing of the recovery in the equity markets, it was almost to the day that the US Federal Reserve strode into the market and said, we'll give you whatever liquidity you want. And and that has meant that they've been buying corporate bonds, they've been been investing in syndicated loans, they've been lending money to small business, uh, and they've been lending money to local government. None of those things have happened in Australia. The Reserve Bank has restricted their liquidity activities Uh, to uh, uh, buybacks on corporate bonds and on mortgage-backed securities, but no outright purchases, and, of course, to government bonds. But it's really been the confidence that's come from the Federal Reserve that has driven the US market that has led to the boost in Australian markets. My view is that at some point, the Federal Reserve will have to draw a line in the sand. They can't keep providing this sort of liquidity we've seen. Think about what they've done with their balance sheet. So before the GFC, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet was $1 trillion. After the GFC, it had blown out to $2 trillion. In the QE process over the following few years, it got up to $4 trillion. Uh, the so-called uh, unwinding of that wasn't very successful. It got slightly below $4 trillion. It's now sitting at around $7 trillion. Total confidence, given already admitted programs going to $8.5 trillion, Uh, Where does it all end? And when the Fed does have to draw a line in the sand, uh, what will that do to market confidence? So I think it's more global issues that will be important for markets, and we can specifically identify 
the activities of the Federal Reserve. I don't think the JobKeeper story will have much of an impact on that. If the Federal Reserve is still pumping liquidity into the world economy, along with federal governments around the world, uh, and not, not, not specifically Australia, then I feel that markets will continue to move. But I think there will be a judgment day over the course of the next few months, possibly around that JobKeeper time, maybe earlier, that'll be associated with a reassessment of the, of the uh, risk environment. And, of course, that's why at the moment we've only got a $0.68 cent Aussie dollar at the end of the year at the current 69 so we think it'll come back a bit uh, over that course once we start to see a reassessment of risk. Excellent. The next question is, given Australia's high personal and household debt levels, how do you expect COVID to impact individuals' ability to service this debt? And what will the likely outcome for the residential property market be as a consequence? Well, what we have to remember about household debt is that everybody talks about the debt, but they don't talk about the assets. And at the moment, the Australian household sector is in a very strong position in terms of net assets. So in other words, the value of their assets is significantly higher than the value of their debt. Unfortunately, sometimes that's risky because there are some people with no debt and very high assets, and there are others that are right on that, on that edge. And they're the ones that, unfortunately, we have to worry about. So if I'm right and there is a fall in house prices, then I think that will have an impact on certain borrowers. Um, but what I'm not saying is that there'll be a rise in interest rates. Indeed, if we were to see a move towards negative interest rates, that would not lead to negative mortgage rates or negative retail deposit rates, but it would see further falls in mortgage rates and further modest falls in retail deposit rates, which, of course, would help also support that market. So I think there will be a shakeout in prices, but we have to bear in mind that the position of the household balance sheet is still in pretty good shape and we're certainly not looking for a rise in interest rates uh, any time over the next three or four years. Thanks, Bill. That actually leads on to the next question. They asked about home loan interest rates increasing. Um, the, the other part of the question was, what are your thoughts around stamp duty being removed to assist the property market? Uh, this is something that's been discussed extensively and is being discussed extensively at both federal and state government levels. The existence of the National Cabinet, I think, provides some, um, some consistency about, about that particular policy. Uh, we, as I indicated before, we know, we've heard the government is looking at specific policies to boost the housing market. At this stage, it seems to be around cash, cash payments for new dwellings, uh, not necessarily just first-home buyers, uh, and also subsidies for renovations and additions. And that points back to the point I made before about that lagged risk that we see with that construction cycle. And, of course, as I indicated, 1.2 million workers uh, get their workers get their work in the construction sector. So it's a very, very large employer, only exceeded by healthcare at 1.7 million uh, and um, manufacturing around 1.1 million professional services, 1.1 million. So construction, critically important. Uh, many, many issues around the equity of introducing uh, land tax relative uh, and funding out stamp duty. Stamp duty, of course, is a constraint on turnover. Turnover is very important for uh, activity in markets. But, of course, land tax, uh, the question is the equity around increasing land taxes to subsidise a reduction in stamp duty. Uh, look, I think there are ongoing discussions from an economic purity perspective. The policy has a lot of benefits to it, but we need to do a lot of very, very careful thinking about the cost-benefit analysis of going in that direction. Thanks, Bill. We've probably got time for one, if not two more questions. Uh, the next question was, how do you see the equity market performing over the next six months and into the new year? Uh, always the hardest question, isn't it, the equity market? As I indicated to you, we can expect to see some pretty confronting earnings reports going forward. Um, I think the last time I looked... Uh, the number of comp the proportion of companies providing earnings guidance was less than 50%. So there's a lot of uncertainty out there around the earnings story. Of course, at the moment, it's, there's the exuberance around the liquidity that central banks and governments are providing to markets that has boosted the equity markets. 
uh, the Nasdaq now above its its, its uh, pre-COVID level. Uh, so I'm I, I I feel that the recovery that we've seen so far is very welcome, uh, but I get more and more nervous as we go forward around potential second waves, around the point at which governments have to say now now is enough in terms of uh, feeding the market with more and more liquidity, uh, and, and around uh, the confronting evidence of, uh, of earnings performances over the next six months. So I'm not a particularly strong bull around the equity market for the next six months. Going forward further beyond that, as I said, Aussie dollar up at 72 cents by the end of next year and 74, 74 cents by the end of 2022 is a pretty good world economy if that was the case. Uh, and good world economies tend to be constructive for equity markets. Okay, I think we can sneak one more in. Uh, All things being equal, when the June quarter GDP result is announced, we will be officially in recession. And yet after the March quarter result was announced today, we see the all ordinaries climbing further. Who or what is driving this bull run? Well, the March number, number, that March number minus 0.3 was a little better than the market was expecting. Um, Up until we saw some data yesterday that was surprisingly strong, particularly around government spending and inventories, we're expecting minus 0.7. As a result of what we saw yesterday, we pushed that to minus 0.4. So still a little above. So the the markets are all about actuality relative to expectations. So the number today wasn't quite as bad as we expect. As I've said to you, the high-frequency data around spending, and it's all about spending at the moment, household spending in the various services sectors in particular, that is, appears to have bottomed out in April uh, and we're starting to see gradual improvements, albeit still levels that are lower than a year ago, but gradual improvements through the course of May. Uh, and that's happening earlier than we expected. Uh, so that's feeding into equity confidence at the moment. Uh, so in the short term, these equity markets will take their lead from the US, uh, which at the moment is just looking at reopening and not worrying about all the risks. Uh, But further down the track, I think we'll have to give further consideration to those points I made before about um, earnings, earnings reports, second waves um, and the slowdown in in, in monetary and fiscal stimulus that has to surely come from the major central banks and the major economies. That's all from us today at Westpac Wire. For more, head to westpacwire.com.au.